Hi, I'm Patrick Rapol. Joel Petrikis is an independent filmmaker from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and his hometown is completely reflected in his work. All four of his films, from the short Gordon to his latest feature, Buzzard, are dripping with local flavor. But if he were given a chance to direct a big Hollywood blockbuster, he doesn't think that would change. If I were to do a Fast and Furious, it would be with, you know, a 1974 Oldsmobile that, that maybe leaks gas or, or the headlights don't work. And, you know, everybody's just driving clunkers um, around town, racing them at like 45 miles an hour or something. I think that would be pretty, pretty hilarious premise on its own. I talked to him about his latest film, Buzzard, which is available on VOD now and is coming to select theaters in April. And later, Jim talks to Riley Stearns, the director of the new feature film, Faults, about landing a famous actress for his debut film. A famous actress who happens to be his wife. And you've got agents and stuff who, like, and obviously on their side, they're going to be a little weary. They're like, you're going to do something with your husband? Are you sure? Are you just doing it to be nice? That's next on Director's Club. You could say that Buzzard is a crime film. That is, it's the pettiest crime film ever made. Its protagonist, Marty Jakotansky, played by Joshua Burge, isn't out to make it rich or find status or really even to stick it to the man. He's just a dude working a shitty temp job, trying to grab a little bit more wherever he can find it, even if that means finding loopholes in his own bank's promotions. I'd like to take advantage of your free checking promotional. I'm sorry, what's... The sign on the window says you get $50 if you open a free checking account. Well, there are stipulations. <laughs> you, know, you can't just uh, close one account and open up another one. Why not? Well, first of all, it doesn't apply to employees. I'm a temp. Well, then, uh, do you know that you need your checking account to stay open for six months or else there's a penalty? Well, there wasn't a penalty when you just closed mine. And how long was it open? Today I happen to be celebrating the six-month anniversary of opening that account. <laughs> Come on. Come on. This is a waste of my time. Not mine. I talked to Buzzard's writer-director, Joel Petrikis. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Patrick? Uh, it's going great. Um, now, I wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, the character of Marty in Buzzard. He is sort of a kind of a, a, a punkish, dirtbag kind of a guy living on the fringes. Uh, when you write a character like that, where do you start? Um, for Marty, always my characters start with one one very basic idea. Um, this one with for Marty, it started. Um, kind of pulling from my, I spent a year uh, temping at a mortgage company here in Grand Rapids, and surprise, surprise, Marty is a temp at a mortgage company in the film, and much of his day is spent exactly how my days were spent, uh, doing as little as possible, taking many, many breaks, long three-hour breaks, uh, just generally looking busy but never being actually busy. So. That's where the initial idea started, was a guy living a very boring life in a very boring job. And then from there, you kind of add things and inject 
Uh, basically, anytime I come up with any idea for a script, it's, I never save it for the future script. It always, I'll somehow squeeze it, squeeze it into the current script. So there's a lot of a lot of crazy ideas happening in Buzzard, um, but it all started with the idea of a guy temping at a terrible, boring mortgage company. It's interesting you say that you you always try to squeeze any idea you have into your current script. I felt that way a lot when I saw uh, your first feature, Ape. Mm-hmm. Um, this, now, actually, the structure of Buzzard is kind of similar to Ape. I think even the the sort of scenes in which uh, Joshua Burge, uh, who plays the main character in both films, is eating something for a long, <laughs> sustained shot. I think it actually occurs in basically the same moment of each movie. Yeah, I always, and, and that moment, yeah, exactly, it usually comes, that's kind of the, always the start of the third act. So I figure if I if I haven't, if people walk out um, because the shot is too long and they're bored with watching a guy eat, then those first two acts have not sucked them in, and that's fine. So it's, it's a good filter moment. If you're not into the movie, now is the time to leave. But if you're into it, it's gonna do something. It's gonna do something for you. Hopefully, have have you had a lot of walkouts during that shot? Surprisingly, not. I, that's what I assumed that people would be walking out. But I think I don't remember any. Every single time I go, I, the movie finishes and I go up for a Q and A. The very first thing I do is say, "Hey, thanks for making it through the spaghetti scene, guys." So, oh, I I actually have to say. Uh, for a lot of buzzard, I wasn't sure if I was with it. Um, I wasn't quite jiving with its sense of humor and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then during that scene, somehow everything in the movie clicked for me, and everything yeah. in retrospect became much funnier. And I understood the character, but like that, what to me was the moment—not the moment I walked out, but the moment where you grabbed me and I Good. and I really understood the film. I think it's um, the, it's, it's probably the most important scene for a lot of different reasons. I. I, I I'm sure people can dismiss it as something self-indulgent and almost borderline experimental, but for me, it, it really uh, helps you understand where this character is coming from and allows you to kind of just sit and relax and watch him in a completely new, foreign, clean environment. So it's, yeah, it's important to me, and I can also understand why it would frustrate people. Um, did, uh, what did you learn about during the production of Ape that helped you make Buzzard? Um, essentially I learned that I can make a feature, um, and I can make a feature far outside of any industry. I can do it in Grand Rapids. I can do it for a low budget. I can, um, you know, do it with basically equipment that I've bought off eBay and that I plan to sell after the shoot back on eBay. So it just gave me the confidence to kind of, um, realize I could do it. And then, you know, when, whenever you watch some of your older things, you you see the things you'd like to change and the mistakes you've made. So um, just little things about performance and, and the way I would cast a movie, um, those all kind of went into helping Buzzard um, be a better experience, I hope. Uh, even going back to the, the film made, you made before, Ape, Coyote, which was a, a Super 8 short, um, the culture that your characters consume goes a long way to define them. Uh, the main character in Coyote listens to Minor Threat, but he's taunted by sort of dancing girls who listen to French pop music. Uh, in in Ape, Trevor listens to a lot of like old school rap, and he talks about uh, Bobby Bittman from SCTV, like oh. he's a personal friend of his. Good call. Um, in Buzzard, you know, Marty listens to like doom metal and he plays Splatterhouse on the Genesis. Are these, are these all just <laughs> things like that you personally like, or do you put a lot of work into sort of 
curating your character's specific taste? No, I always, uh, all I'm ever doing is making a movie that I want to see. So all of those things are just things that I really, really like. And, and I, so especially for music, if I'm going to put music in my movie, I want to love that music. Um, and again, that kind of goes back to what I was saying. If I have an idea, it's going to go in there. So if I have an idea about a junkie, uh, you know, shooting up in a, in a bedroom, that's going to, that I want minor threat to be playing. Uh, and suddenly I have a scene about people dancing to old French pop music. It's like, well, I can put these two scenes together in the same movie. That's okay. I'll connect them somehow. So that's for me, it's just kind of mixing it up and, and keeping the audience kind of off guard a little bit because hopefully they're not really sure about the tone of the film and where, what direction it's going in. And I think music plays an important part of, of setting up those cues. Well, certainly no audience member watching Coyote would predict the uh, dance sequence in the middle of it. No, they would not predict that I just straight up stole that from uh, uh, Ben de Apart. Everything, every scene and just about everything I've done is stolen from another movie and I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, pretty open about those those thieveries. Well, I, I only was able to catch a couple of them. There's there's obviously the Mauve Sang moment oh, uh, yeah. at the end of Buzzard. Absolutely. We replace modern love with uh, some thrash death metal. Um, now, in addition to writing and directing Buzzard, you play Marty's dorky co-worker, Derek, who lets Marty crash in his basement. And uh, some of the funniest scenes in the movie come from the dynamic that you and Joshua Bird share. Mm-hmm. Oh. Jeez, man. I am king of the matrix. Oh, oh, oh. Dude, you cut me. You cut me. You cut me. Go get something. Stop the bleeding. I'm going to bleed. I'm going to bleed. Dude, hurry up. Oh, my gosh. Get a shirt. Get a shirt or something. Not that shirt. That's my Soundgarden shirt. Dude, you're never going to listen to it. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Get something else. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to bleed soon, dude. I'm going to start bleeding. Hurry. Hurry. Oh, 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 look at that. Oh, oh. You think that's gonna bleed? Dude, it's not even cut. I know, but I might start bleeding, right? Man. Oh, that's bad. It's unbelievable. Oh, those things aren't even sharp, dude. They suck. Lame. At what point in pre production did you decide that you were gonna play Derek? Yeah, that's a good question because, um,. It was not originally, I did not write it for myself, for sure. I mean, every character that I write, you know, I obviously I understand the character, and I, I know where that character is coming from, and I know people like that, or I know parts of my own personality um, that I'm kind of amplifying and projecting onto that character. So we had, we had kind of a rare luxury um, on Buzzard where we would never have working for a studio or anyone is we had eight months of um, rehearsal and in those eight months we had not cast anyone outside of Josh for Marty and so I would always read the Derek character and after a couple months you know the produce, the producers watching us rehearse would be like Joel you are Derek we can't find anyone else why bother it's you so uh, that just kind of happened because I knew the material so well, and uh, and and it helped a lot because Derek and Marty have a lot of goofing off together, and there's a lot of back and forth between those guys, and that's kind of a 
a similar way that me and Joshua are in real life, just kind of always messing with each other and, and elbowing each other. So that, that kind of chemistry was important to sell those, that friendship, if you want to call it, um, in the film. Um, you, you had, you had eight months of rehearsal. Yeah. And that's just because, that's just because, uh, we wanted to take our time and make sure we did it right. We were in no rush. I mean, of course, you know, I spent maybe four months writing the script and then we start rehearsal period. And by the end of that eight month rehearsal period, the script had changed quite a bit. So that's, that was an important process of writing the script and, and coming up with new lines and improvs. Um, so when we get to set, um, hopefully it feels natural and we, we understand every single line of dialogue that if we want to change things up at the last minute, it's not going to throw the other person off because they're so comfortable in that part. I mean, everybody, every bank teller, every clerk, everybody had to come in for at least one day and, and rehearse with us for four or five hours just to make sure that the words, uh, you know, kind of fit in their mouth properly and, and, and they, they understood, you know, the importance of every scene. So yeah, rehearsal for me is totally crucial. It's not like we rehearsed every day. It was once or twice a week for eight months, but you know, four or five hours. So, uh, we got to set, we could just crank out the scene really quickly. No messing around. No, no, uh, no drama other than what's in the, what's in the film. I, I suppose that kind of, uh, that kind of interesting structure for a pre-production period could only happen on an independent film. Yeah, you would never ever get that luxury um, working for a studio. I was I was talking with uh, Ramin Barani, who had the same kind of the same experience with uh, Man Push Cart and Chop Shop, where he had about six months of rehearsal and they they, they filmed the entire movie um, like on a video camera just to make sure everything was blocked out and everybody knew it right. And when he stepped up to do um, At Any Cost, I believe it's called, with uh, Dennis Quaid and everything, so his big studio film, he had one day of rehearsal, and he freaked out, and he didn't think he was going to pull it off. And he said on the first day of shooting, everything went perfectly because they're actors. That's their job. They, they know how to act. Um, so we're kind of coming from a world where he was, where... We're working with a cast that, that may not, um, you know, have as much experience as a Dennis Quaid. So we wanted to make sure everybody was was up to par um, before we got to set. Sure, sure. Um, now, your your last three films, the all named after animals, they share the thread of lonely outsiders played by Joshua Burge, who in one way or another end up lashing out at uh, society, I guess, and... And these outsiders, they all you know share traits with the animal that the film's named after. In Coyote, Joshua, he plays a junkie with like a werewolf kind of affliction. In Ape, he's sort of fascinated by fire and is kind of sporadically violent. And in Buzzard, he's sort of living on the fringes and scavenging whatever he can. Uh, at what point in the process of writing the script do you decide on a, a, a title? Uh, yeah, you know, I never set out four years ago to make um, an animal trilogy. Coyote came about because I, I, I just started to love the sound of those titles with animals. You know, they just, for whatever reason, they're always, you know, these films are, you know, if you really want to dissect them, they're about kind of man's animalistic instincts and his, his, his you know, unnatural raging, uh, you know, against this, uh, 
a raging against the unnatural world that is, you know, of, of urban landscape and all of that. So um, after I wrote Ape was originally, I'll just lay it out, uh, Coyote was originally called Friday, Saturday, and Coyote just came. I don't know where that came from, and I was like, yep, it's called Coyote. And then for Ape, that was originally called Freak Out, and I was suggesting, someone was telling me about their film and they needed a title, and I said, that sounds great, you should call it Ape, because I think there was gorillas in it. And they were like, nah, and I was like, and then about five seconds later, I was like, good, because actually I want to call my movie Ape. I think that's so awesome. <laughs> and then after you make two animal movies, you kind of have to, you get pressure from everybody else. Like, well, you got to make one more and make it a trilogy. So, um, so yeah, Buzzard and, and, you know, Buzzard kind of fit perfectly because Marty is a, a vulture or a buzzard feeding off of the cracks of society and all that. So it just feels right. The next film is not going to be an animal title, though. No. No. Yeah, Joshua Burge. He also kind of has that bird-like face with his with his nose and his eyes. Um, Buzzard is just sort of a, a great title when you first see his face. Yeah, the weird. This is a really funny weird story. So um, when we were first when we were shooting, when we were asking permission from uh, local businesses and locations, and everything. To use to use for the movie, we felt that the title "Buzzard" was a little aggressive, a little harsh sounding. We wanted to soften it up, so on all of our contracts, we we put the name of the movie was Birdman, and this was <laughs> this was long before we knew of Inuritu's Birdman or anything. And uh, so, part of me wonders if people in Grand Rapids are going out to see Birdman in the theater, were bummed out to see that their gas station scene was deleted or something. And um, and and Joshua Burge is actually working with Alejandro Inarritu right now on his new film. Yeah, I was about to. I was about to so say. So it's like a that was like a really weird thing, man. That that kind of only hit me a couple weeks ago. How crazy that was. Sure. Um, that's speaking of Joshua Burge. He, he's been a longtime collaborator of yours. How has your relationship working with him changed over the course of the last three films? Uh, mostly just our nonverbal communication has improved uh, normally I don't even have to explain anything to him he just I'll give him a nod or a, I'll just say something like you know here you're supposed to and he'll go yeah I got it so we've just been working so long that we we have a, a great back and forth that we're just on the same exact page about how everything um, how we picture everything to be and, and he knows how to how to give me what I want, and uh, I'm always, always surprised by him, though, somehow. He always surprises me in the best possible way. I think every day on the set of Buzzard, there was, I'm sure there was two or three moments where I'd go up and give him a hug after a take and and, and want to kiss him because he was just surprised me so much. So, um, yeah, I'm really lucky to have been able to work with that guy for so long. How how did you first uh, meet him for uh, when you were casting Coyote? Uh, he is he is uh, a musician by trade. He was not an actor when I met him, and I, I first saw him at like coffee shops in college. He was kind of doing a Bob Dylan thing back then, and he slowly evolved into a, a full a full band that that had more of kind of has they're they're called Chance Jones, and the band is kind of like Motown anti folk. Uh, it's uh, it's super awesome and great and and he slowly kind of developed into a, a performer who 
who on stage kind of feels like Michael Jackson meets like Tom Waits. He's really got a lot of shucking and jiving going on there. And I would always just go watch his, watch his band and be like, man, I don't know if that dude can act or not. I've never talked to him about it, but if I could get a little bit of that crazy energy into a movie, I think we'd have something um, pretty unique. So luckily for me, he turned out to be a pretty good actor too. So Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, uh, do you, now that the Animal Trilogy is done, do you see you, uh, you two work continuing to work together in the future, or um, I don't, I don't are know you going to try to go separate ways? I don't know if I can afford him anymore. <laughs> he's a... Uh, <laughs> He's, he's property of Fox Searchlight. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, we're going to try to work together um, in the future. But there is literally you know, new obstacles to overcome and, and weird probably contracts and red tape to deal with. But that's, that's not a big deal, I don't think. Um, I want him to stay busy working with other you know, dream directors and doing what he's doing. And, and if he can make time for, for another one of my movies, that's great. Um, so, uh, we'll see, we'll see. It's a pretty exciting time coming up and I, none of us, neither one of us are really sure what's, what's happening. Um, so one of my favorite things about all of your films is the environments they take place in. You really capture that feeling of sort of Midwest desolation, which is different than say, you know, the way Detroit looks at the end of buzzer. There is a sort Sort of of, uh, desolation of almost, I don't know, like, like desolation of spirit to Mm -hmm. the sort of Satanness and, and sort of just, uh, omnipresent seven elevens that exist, (laughs) uh, you know, in uh, places like Michigan or, you know, in, in Illinois where I grew up and, um, and you've made all your films in Michigan and you filmed, uh, I believe your, all your, uh, your, their last three films solely in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, can you see yourself like breaking out of that, moving to LA and, and working there or um, like, like, you yeah. know, doing a, doing a film that takes place somewhere completely different or do you want to sort of keep this uh, Midwestern vibe going? Yeah. You know, it's something I, I get asked a lot and for me, you know, the whole Midwestern landscape, I, I really never, ever thought about that. It's just because this is where I live. It's where I hang out. It's just what I'm used to. It didn't really hit me how kind of Midwest the films look until Ape made its world premiere at Locarno, which is in Switzerland. And they saw, they saw this world of 7-Elevens and empty streets as some kind of like wild west uh, somewhere different than the new yorks and the la's that they're used to seeing but before that i never once consciously thought about it it's just i live here and this is where i make my movies so um that's obviously what's going to make into the film um but as far as moving to la you know i'm starting to realize that the, the midwest is a really big important part of the stories I tell and and the appeal to people and why they can relate to this to these films. So I've I've always been a guy who has kind of given the middle finger to LA just because I've had so many friends move out there with hopes of becoming filmmakers and and they're still you know 15 years later they're still lugging tripods and moving light equipment um, and that's something I've just always kind of been afraid of getting sucked into um but you know to be honest 
I got to make a buck. So if L.A. offered me some, you know, crazy, crazy movie to direct or some boring movie to direct, I think I'd do it. I think I think the model, a lot of directors I know, they do one for me and one for them. And I think that's a great way to continue to make, to be able to make a living as a filmmaker is, is you do one, one, you get paid for one and suck it up and punch, punch your time card and do it. And then after that, you do one of your own on a small budget in Grand Rapids, and then you go back to one for them. I could I could live that life if it was offered to me, as long as I can still do what I want to do um, with this, you know, my same group of collaborators I'm working with now. What would it? What would a Joel Petrikis one for them uh, even look like? Uh, would it be like a? <sighs> Like a like a like a more well like that sort of improvisational comedy or I always I always like to think like if I was wonder if I was hired to do uh, like a Fast and Furious sequel and you know I I honestly feel like I could inject my own signature into anything and I don't I don't not to say that the studios would like it but I think I could I'd make it interesting for myself like you know if I were to do a Fast and Furious it would be with you know, a 1974 Oldsmobile that that maybe leaks gas or or the headlights don't work, and you know everybody's just driving clunkers um, around town, racing them at like 45 miles an hour or something. I think that would be pretty pretty hilarious premise on its own. Um, I've been tapped to uh, I'm on a list to direct. Right now, I just found out uh, a sequel to a movie that I've never seen before, a movie that I've never had interest in seeing. I'll just keep it vague and say that as a high school um, party movie, I will need to do my research, I guess. But um, I already have my own way of doing it. So I think I could take any... Transformers, if I had to do that, it would be like the Transformers would just constantly be breaking down and... And then just not working right and malfunctioning. I don't know. I think you can inject your own style into just about anything and, and feel somewhat artistically satisfied with the outcome. Maybe a transforming a Walkman. There you go. Yeah, transforming into useless the useless things. More like the, how the toys were. You know, transforming into, yeah. into a cassette tape. It's like, dude, what the, what's this going to do for me? There, there is the transformer that would transform into a gun. But like the implication was that it would be a giant gun no one could hold. Yeah. Do that. So it's just like, dude, help, help, help me climb up this gun so we can shoot the bad guy. You know, like, I think yeah. that'd be pretty hilarious. That'd be great. Um, so when I end up describing Buzzard to people, I find myself using the phrase, uh, a, a dirtbag gutter punk version of Stranger Than Paradise, which is a, a total compliment. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, is, is Jim Jarmusch a big influence of yours? Yeah, he's the, he's one of the big ones. Um, the first guy that ever made me think I could make a movie um, was Sam Raimi with The Evil Dead. Um, he's, you know, everyone's from Michigan. It just felt, I could feel the, I could feel the hands behind the camera. And that was in high school. And then in college, I think I was a freshman in college, I saw Stranger Than Paradise. And that, that made me feel like I could do it in a different way. I'd been imitating Evil Dead in high school for so long when I saw it. Stranger Than Paradise, it felt more like my world and my kind of people, and it didn't go anywhere, and I just, I, I fell in love with it as much as anyone can fall in love with a movie, and only until recently, I think I realized that um, 
I've, I've, uh, all I've been doing is, tr- is subconsciously blending the evil dead with early Jim Jarmish, this kind of, um, loner characters that are going nowhere with the kind of, a uh, just this dead, uh, landscapes, but then infused with r- some really intense out of nowhere, um, violence or shocks. So, I think I've been ripping those two guys off for a long time. Jarmish is really, really important to me. Um, yeah, I, I was I was rewatching uh, parts of Stranger Than Paradise today, and there is I think even the way you edit Buzzard with the with the brief cuts to black, black, yeah, um, that's, between scenes, absolutely, that's is, taken straight from Jarmish. Yep. Um, and so one of my favorite moments in Buzzard was. The, was right at the open when Marty was playing a nightmare on Elm Street on the power glove and getting frustrated because the power glove is obviously a piece of shit. First guy, um, to, first guy to catch that that he's playing nightmare on Elm Street on the Nintendo. Good job. Oh, I I sunk dozens and dozens of hours into a nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street. Me too. On me and my friend, and he, my friend would always steal the wizard costume, and I always had to be the ninja. And that was that was sort of the first. There's a there's like the new Mario games. You can like eat too many mushrooms and stuff. And I remember that game being. Or, like, you can take mushrooms away when you're playing, like, a two-player at the same time. I remember that being the same thing with Nightmare on Elm Street, where, like, your friends would just fuck you over or get in your way, or they wouldn't move the screen far enough and you'd miss a jump. That's great. Yeah. So so many flaws, but great. I love that game. Um, so, uh, but, but speaking of yep. uh, film to video game adaptations, uh, you have a Kickstarter going on right now to adapt Buzzard into an old-school video game. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, Buzzard is basically about one or two guys who are living out their own video game fantasy, um, kind of with no consequences, and you uh, can start over. So we are we are taking the idea of two characters in a video game and making it literal, and designing an old 8-bit retro uh, NES-style Buzzard video game, and I... Uh, <laughs> I'm super excited to play it because I don't even know. Uh, I'm, I'm giving, I'm, I'm letting the company kind of run free a little bit, and I'm acting as creative consultant on on looks and certain character uh, designs and everything. And I've suggested a lot of ideas, but they are kind of running off and doing amazing, crazy things with it. And uh, we'll we'll see what it goes. Where we need a lot of help with our Kickstarter, and what is I see it more as like a store because you can basically go to the Kickstarter and buy the game for only ten dollars. So it's not like a Kickstarter where it's like a hundred dollar contribution will get you the game. We just figured let's just sell the game for ten dollars. Um, so that's like the best deal to me uh, on the whole internet right now. Sure. Uh, how did you get hooked up with uh, Baby Castles is the group making this game. How did you get hooked up with them? Uh, they're a New York-based uh, video game company, and our distributor, Oscilloscope Laboratories, is also in New York. And so it made more sense. Well, I mean, Baby Castle is one of, I think, the best like kind of like DIY indie video game programmers around. And when they Oscilloscope first brought up the idea of a video game, actually happening not and, and taking me seriously about it um they suggested baby castles and i was already familiar with them so that was uh, a super logical fit um so uh they're totally on board they get it i just it's important that the company that was doing it understood it understood like the humor and the, the absurdity of the film so they could translate that into uh, a digital world 
So they're the, they're the right guys for it, and they're, they're doing a lot of crazy, awesome things so far already. Joel, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. It was fun. You can go to buzzerfilm.com for more info on how to see the film. Fault is a film about a battle of wits and wills, head-to-head combat between veteran character actor Leland Orser as a professional cult deprogrammer and rising star Mary Elizabeth Winstead as a recently liberated cult member. Part comedy, part thriller, part uh, something more bizarre than any of that, Fault's made a big splash at last year's South by Southwest Film Festival and it's available on video on demand now. Jim talked with the writer-director Riley Stearns about the film. Our daughter is not well. She's someone else. She told me that she had found God, that she had made love to it. I don't want to lose my daughter, Mr. Roth. Are you familiar with deprogramming? We would forcibly take your daughter away from the group. Far away. She did not know where she was. But more importantly, where no one else would be able to find her. I would begin the process of breaking her down. You have to ask yourselves, how far am I willing to go? What's going on inside your head right now? I'm thinking about how I want to rip your tongue out of your throat so you'll shut up. I'm probably going to move back a little right now. A few years back, I had watched a short film called uh, Magnificat. Um, directed by our guest here. It unnerved me, (laughs) and it also announced that a really talented filmmaker was emerging. Um, I remember reading Ebert's review of the movie Bound, and he said, It's not often that you think of the Coen brothers, The Last Seduction, and the Marx brothers all while watching the same film. And for me, seeing both Magnificat and seeing the Cub at the uh, Chicago Critics Film Festival, I thought this uh, particular filmmaker was tapping into some of my favorite styles, but it was also a singular, fully realized and original vision that contained a lot of humor and, of course, audacity. So I was quite eager to see a feature-length film, and now, everybody, it is here. Um, The second I got home from work last week, I rented Faults uh, on on VOD. And, of course, as I expected, I loved it. I was transfixed from beginning to end, and now my initial enthusiasm and acclaim based on just three short films is now justified. Um... I feel that Faults is easily one of the best films of the year. It's darkly funny, mind-twisting, and happens to surround an area of interest that I've always found fascinating, going all the way back to when I was a kid, and that would be cults. So, I am pleased and honored to welcome to the show, Riley Stearns. Hey, Riley. Hey, how's it going? That intro was crazy nice. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's great to talk with you. Um I just, uh, it's hard to know where to start because, um, like I mentioned, this is a, an area of interest that you happen to tackle for your first feature, uh, feature-length film. Um, and, and like most stories about cults, it had an effect on me. It was like this interesting hybrid between Dogtooth and Martha Marcy May Marlene by way of David Mamet's Oleana, in which... Two characters spend most of their time confronting one another in one location. So what sparked this idea for you in the beginning stages? 
Well, it's interesting. You said that you were fascinated with cults as a kid, and I'm the exact same way. I, yeah. I was the kid who would see a documentary on TV about cults and watch it like more than once. Uh, that was back before DVR, so if it would come on again, I would watch it again. Uh, I read books on the subject, uh, movies, everything, and and <clears throat> so it was something that had always kind of been in the back of my mind as something that I would like to kind of tackle as a as a film, or at least in some way. Um, and I did the shorts and I kind of, uh, was getting to the point where I hadn't written a feature in a while and, and all the features that I wrote before, I don't think are very good, but they at least were helping me figure out what I was or like who I was as a writer and what my voice was. And, and, uh, came time to write that, that first feature that I could see myself directing. And I went back to what I knew and that was the world of cults mm. and, uh, even more so just the idea of deprogramming and or, uh, the technique of deprogramming, kidnapping and debrainwashing somebody who's been indoctrinated by a cult. Uh, there's just so much good source material there and so many crazy stories and and uh, just the experience of it all and then the Wild West nature of it where it was these guys just trying to figure out how to get family members back for family members. Uh, yeah, it just kind of all started writing itself. And hmm. and that was the best feeling as, as I was going through and, and writing the script was just knowing that everything was feeling right. Well, that's great to hear. Did you do any like initial research at all in terms of interviewing people who had been in cults or deprogrammers? Like did Leland himself sort of, you know, because some math method actors get really intense about that stuff. Did you do any like sort of preparation and interviewing type? Sure. I mean, Leland and Mary aren't really method, which is nice because yeah. <laughs> that was, that's an intensity that I don't know that I could have handled on my first uh, film. Sure. <laughs> like we'll see about second or third or whatever. But for this, it, it was nice that they, they're the types of people who are, are able to turn it on and off, which is actually the coolest way to do it, I think. And, and just being able to be another person and know that you're an actor. So Leland, Leland and Mary did some, some reading. Leland in particular read this book uh, by Ted Patrick, who's the father of modern day deprogramming. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, and he read this book called Let Our Children Go. And he ended up giving a copy to Mary. But I didn't really want to be too affected by the actual uh, like ins and outs of the process. I knew uh, the language that was used. I did a little bit of uh, rereading of this one book to kind of um, get familiar with the, the, the structure of it again. But I didn't want to be too bogged down in fact when I was doing sure. uh, the script screenwriting par uh, part of the, the process. Um, and so uh, it really turned into more of like, how do I make it my own grounded in reality, but not uh, bogged down by it, if that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think you accomplished just that. Um, right, good. And in terms of style, I really like your affinity for static shots. And, you know, there's often complemented with slow zooms and sort of just subtlety throughout. And obviously not to take away from how original of a director I think you are, because you have confidence behind the camera and you clearly work really well with actors. But are there particular influences for you in terms of favorite films and filmmakers that uh, just inspired you over the years? Yeah, yeah I remember. Uh, so you mentioned Magnificat, which as, as a short, I think it's it's fine, but it doesn't really represent me as a director. And that's why it's hard. Like, I don't have it online anymore. If people ever want to watch it, I'll send them the link. But but it's not really something that I put out there in, anymore as, as, uh, as representative of myself. But around that time, uh, or I guess just before that, I was really, really taken aback after watching four months, three weeks, and two days. Oh, yeah. That's a and, great one. Yeah, that movie just, like, 
it was a kick to the gut and it was something that really changed the way I thought about filmmaking. And I kind of really started trying to mimic that. And that was the, which is funny because obviously that film's not a horror film, but it's terrifying in other ways. But I definitely was kind of trying to figure out how to do something like that with, with Magnificat. And uh, that film is still stuck with me. I feel like a lot of the way that, that they, they shot things and, and the way that uh, uh, they worked with actors on the film uh, are, are super inspiring still to this day for me. Um, but then I also uh, it ju- I saw a couple of years later Dogtooth by Yorgos Lanthimos. Ah, uh, yes. And so it's pretty much just I'm copying, uh, <laughs> I'm copying European directors right now. <laughs> like I'm just uh, – yeah, the static shots, the um, – slightly off-putting angles, uh, things of that nature uh, really kind of affect me and, and hopefully affect the viewer. And you're not doing it just to do it. You're doing it to get a, a visceral response to, even if it's super, super subtle, like an angle can can do so many things for you. And, and holding on a shot, too, is the same thing. And uh, part of that holding on like a long take of an actor or, or whatever is that you I don't like to cut into performance. I like actors uh, doing their work. I, I, I like to just let them do what they do best. And if you manipulate the performance through editing, I feel like in some ways you can do a disservice to a film and, and a, a scene. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's also part of it is just like not wanting to break up what they're doing as their art. If Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I, it, it's funny because... You know, when I was first getting into film as like a, a late teenager and stuff, I was huge into showy camera work like Sam oh, Raimi. Too. Yeah, me too, totally. And I still love watching those movies. Yeah, me too. I realized that I I'm more drawn myself towards the slower things. Yeah. But then the next I, I say that and then the next thing that I'm doing, I think I'm I'm gonna like branch out a little bit more and do a few more things. But one thing that I like to do when I'm directing is set like one rule that you can't break as when you're shooting the movie unless you absolutely have to. And so mm. um for the cub there were no pans. Um, and that was like the rule that I gave myself. And then, and for, for faults, I did, I, and it's, I broke it twice in the movie. There's two tilts in the entire film, but (laughs) there's, there's no, uh, dollies and there's no tilting of the camera up or down. So it's little things like that, that I think are fun to play with. And I think having a rule that you can't break the entire movie is, is a fun exercise, I, some people will probably tell me I'm crazy that you should use like every single tool that you have available to make something. But for now, it's it's been a fun thing, a uh, fun experiment for me as I, as I make each uh, thing. So in terms of things, uh, in terms of how things play out, I, w- I really appreciate sort of the slow unraveling of the truth without necessarily being reliant on, you know, the conventional twist and turn. Um because you kind of subverted the idea of a twist ending so it wouldn't come across as like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of gimmick, which to me shows your strengths as a storyteller. What was the writing process for you? I mean, you sort of mentioned that it sort of wrote itself. Listen to my words. Feel them. Are you to blame for Jennifer's death? I was in control. I used her. I could have helped her, but I chose not to. I made that choice. And that choice cost you everything? Everything, yes. Tell me what you lost. I want to hear it. My show, money, my house, my wife. No! Those are things. What 
did you lose? I I sit with ideas for a long time, and so Faults was kind of no different uh, in, in that regard. I, I had the initial idea for doing the Decult deprogramming film for a while, and I, at one point it really was more of a dramatic take on it. Uh, and then I uh, made the cub and I made a uh, cask and, and just realized that I liked doing things that had a sense of humor to them. And that like, sure. that was my voice. And that was the stuff that I liked to watch. And, and so I started looking at this cult idea that I had from more of that perspective. And once I did, and once I f- realized that she was the one and and I guess I don't want to I don't want to get into spoilers or whatever but once I figured out what Claire was in this story mm-hmm. um, that kind of helped me figure out the rest of the movie and so it was it was probably I want to say like six months of maybe sitting with the story from that I initial or sorry not that initial idea that like that last kick of an idea uh, with Claire's character to I, I went to Sundance with my short the cub and then I got back from Sundance and gave myself a day to recoup. And then the next day I started writing the script. Hmm. And then two weeks later, the script was done. And so I, I do, when I say it was, it wrote itself, like obviously I sat down at a, a table and I wrote it, but I didn't feel like I was struggling with it. Like I didn't feel like it was, it was hard every day. I wrote 10 pages and I had like a day off here and there, but, but it just really came out in a really fluid and, and, free form motion like way and, and and it just felt supernatural yeah and you found that <clears throat> right balance i think between like the dramatic and the eerie um, it's just like it's a movie that sort of creeps into you and I, those are my favorite kinds of movies yeah uh, thanks i mean that's the the script had that too i feel like when you read it it's it, it is different in some ways to the feature because like obviously the camera and the performance adds so much to it but i do mm-hmm. feel like everything you read on the page is is there uh, on, on on the screen as well and and you talked about like the twist and I, I didn't want it to be dependent upon the twist because I knew that people are smart enough that people are going to figure out uh, like at least <laughs> half the audience who talks to me after a screening is like well, I totally figured that out but like it doesn't matter and yeah. I'm yeah that's that's the hope is that if even if you're smart enough or or just like you get how film works you're going to start piecing together where the writer is going. And and I didn't want it to be dependent on that, and I don't think it is. I feel like even though you may know where we're going, you don't know how we're going to get there. Exactly. You know, I'm sure you've gotten this question a bunch of times throughout every interview, but I think it's worth mentioning. I'll preface a little bit why. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is an incredibly talented actress that I've actually, you know, really enjoyed since all the way back in, when she did Sky High, of all films. Me too. <laughs> and um, then when I saw Smashed, I began singing her praises even more because of, obviously, her progression from film to film. But Faults is just, it's another step up for her, in my opinion. And I'm assuming she's who you had in mind while writing. Um, and did she sort of read through the script with you during the process? And, of course, just curious to... What is the dynamic like when working with an actress that you happen to be married to? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I was I was going to say that just in case you didn't get to it, just in case people didn't know. But Mary and I are married. We've been married for four years, but we've also been together since we were seventeen and eighteen. So we, oh wow, it's been a long time, and I I just feel like she's my my other half. Like people say that, but we really mm-hmm. do have the same mind. And so obviously, when you've got an actor as talented as 
as her living in the same house as you, you're going to use her if she'll let you use her in, <laughs> in your film. Like I, there was no way I wasn't writing something for her. And so uh, once we kind of like, I, I was sure it was going to be this, this deprogramming thing. I knew that she would be the uh, deprogrammee and uh, she was reading pages. Like I, I was pitching her ideas before I started writing. She read the outline that I wrote uh, before I went to Sundance as just like a, in case anybody wants to read at Sundance, dance which nobody did and then uh she started reading pages uh after i i was kind of putting those together when i got back from the festival and then about halfway through the the writing process we kind of both agreed she should just kind of wait and read the rest of it once we were finished yeah um, and then she read it agreed that she wanted to do it which was just a huge weight off my shoulders because you can write something and it can be for your wife or your spouse or your friend or whatever but you can't guarantee that they're going to like it and you don't want them to do it just because they feel an obligation to and and i did feel like i wrote something that was cool and was good enough for her to want to do and so it was just it was nice that she agreed with me and and you've got agents and stuff who like and obviously on their side they're going to be a little weary they're like you're going to do something with your husband are you sure are you just doing it to be nice and and she said no no like i really think that this is great and uh we kind of from there just uh, it was it was getting our producers on board who uh were Keith uh, Keith Calder and Jessica Calder who ended up doing it and then uh, on set, I feel like we're very similar to how we are when we're in everyday life. Like we uh, got straight to work. Uh, we we kind of kept it professional, but it wasn't like we had to think about keeping it professional. Uh, and then we even had people on the last day of shooting who uh, they saw us like kissing at the just like <laughs> a peck on the cheek or whatever, even like at at the after party thing, uh, like the the, the rap party. And there were people like, wait a minute, are you guys together? And we're like, we're not, we're, we're, we're married. Like we're and some, so many cast member uh, crew members didn't even know that. So, and it wasn't even a conscious thing that we did on our, on our part. It was just, that was the nature of the shoot. Like we, that's, we, we jumped into our roles and, and we didn't really have to keep things separate. It's just kind of happened that way. Nice. Yeah. yeah it, it seems that way too. And I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Leland, man. I think he's, oh, me he's, too fantastic in your movie um it's funny too like um in the past couple days i went to my library and i saw that there's this movie called morning for sale there Mm -hmm. and i went "Ooh, i haven't seen this and i I had no idea that he wrote and directed it so i'm going to get to that real soon too and i'm excited to to watch that but uh how did he come into the casting process i mean obviously if people don't know who he is he's a, a great character actor that you most likely um remember from the movie seven <laughs> yeah i mean seven was his big breakout role yeah. and i saw an interview or heard an interview with him recently where he was saying that the casting director of that film had to convince him to do it like he got the role and he still wasn't sure that he wanted to be the guy who was that guy in that in mm-hmm. that scene with the in, in in the brothel down in the basement or whatever um uh with the lust killing but he uh he man he's one of those guys who's been around forever i've loved him and everything he's done but he's one of those guys that you like you're like oh he's that guy yes yeah. you recognize the face and you know he's going to do good work but you don't necessarily see him as or like certain people don't see him as the leading role kind of guy what if someone else is in control what if they control your physical body your mind's every thought your emotional well-being well ladies and gentlemen cults do this 
They exploit the fact that inside every single one of us is the capacity to be captivated, to be manipulated, controlled. They exploit your weaknesses and remove you from those who care about you. They create emotional and physical barriers, distancing you from everyone and everything you once knew, including yourself. I wanted to make a movie from the very beginning that was filled out with uh, character actors. So every single character in our actor in our movie, I feel like is a character actor and just talented person who isn't going to distract from anything. But there's a sense of familiarity that you you get from as an audience member watching them because you know them from other things. And even with Mary, I, I can I consider Mary a character actor in a lot sure. of ways. Oh, yeah. ways because of her chameleon-like nature uh, in, in the way that she kind of takes on a role. Um, but with Leland, what happened was he was doing the guest with our producers, Keith Calder and Jessica Calder, uh, at Snood Entertainment. Um, they were shooting it in New Mexico as we were doing our pre-production on this film. We we're having a hard time finding an actor uh, for, for the role of Ansel, and, and everyone was kind of scrambling and trying to figure this out, and nobody felt right. We were offering to some people who just would have been terrible in it or just some people who would just not have been right and they, they they're great actors but they just don't have the the qualities i was looking for in this character and keith and jess showed up to set the first day and on the monitor was leland uh, like <laughs> kind of just getting ready for a shot and he had this mustache and he just like I think Keith knew that there was something there and he sent me a text with Leland's picture on the monitor, uh, on, on from set and it said Ansel. And I immediately wrote back and said, yes, like it was one of those things that I think for all of us, it just clicked right away. That's our guy. And, uh, Leland read the script and he flipped out over it. And then the next, uh, time that he was in LA, like a couple of weeks later, he and I met for coffee and basically just talked about everything but film. And then at the very end, I was like, so you've got the part if you want it. And he and I kind of like, I think both of us were so relieved that it, like, not that we were crying, but like, I would say that I, I felt pretty emotional that like, I finally found the guy who was going to make this movie happen. And boy, did he, he is so yeah. talented and so good. I, I'm so excited that people are going to get to see him in a leading role finally. Same here. I'm curious to know more about just um, uh, overall, like how the industry has changed. And, you know, obviously directors still want their work to be shown at film festivals and ideally um, purchased by a studio for wider distribution. And But really, it's just the way films are being accessed uh, is changing. Are you a fan? Like oh, I mentioned, okay. how, I, how I saw your film was through VOD. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so it's a weird time for, for independent cinema uh, and cinema in general, obviously, but I, I'm kind of trying to just embrace the VOD thing. Like I, obviously if people can see something in a theater, you want them to, that's why we, we mix on sound stages that uh, have like the same bass and, and, and speaker level as, as, as a theater that you would see at uh, your local Cineplex or whatever. Like we want it to be played loud. We want it to be seen on a big screen. I mean, painstaking effort goes into color correcting the film. I'm really, really pleased with the way our film looks. I, I, my mm -hmm. cinematographer, Michael Reagan and I, like we, we talked a lot about what we wanted to do and he's been a longtime collaborator collaborator. And, uh, and so, yeah, everything points to it being a theatrical thing, but I understand the way that movies are, are going now and the way that uh, there's so much out there and there's so many ways to see things that I'm just embracing that side of things. I, I 
watch a lot of films at, on iTunes now myself, and I feel bad about it sometimes. But I, I mean, everyone has busy schedules, and, yep. and not everyone can go out to the theaters, and theaters cost a lot of money too. So yeah, totally understand all of that, and I, I, I just hope people see it, and and like that's the main thing is like I never. I, I, I hoped that we would play in theaters, but I knew that even if we did, it would be a small run. And and the main thing is that I just am excited that I've made a feature that people can see, period. Like, I, I'm beyond lucky to be able to even say that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just running with it and going with the flow, for sure. I just want to say that it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, I also, I, just really quickly here... Um, can you recommend a movie that not a lot of people know about for our listeners that you think deserves uh, attention? And so, yes. Yeah, so uh, it, it's funny. I've been asked this uh, in a in a few Q and A's, uh, and and also just like uh, doing like uh, email interviews and everything. Uh, question a couple of times, and and I, at first I was like, I don't. I, I'm not a cinephile. I don't know like everything there is to know about movies, and and I haven't seen a ton of stuff, and. And I feel bad about that, but I also am trying to rectify that. But one film that I have seen that not a lot of people have seen uh, is A Matter of Life or, or Death, or it's also called A Stairway to Heaven. It's a Powell and Pressburger film, Ooh. and it is just one of the most breathtaking movies. Um, it's about like this this basically there's there's a uh, uh, like courtroom proceedings in heaven. And I'm doing that. I, that's all I'll say because I'm I would do a terrible job at describing the film, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's got black and white and color, Technicolor. And uh, if you like the Red Shoes or um, Black Narcissus or anything from from those guys, you will love this movie. All right. Well, I have no doubt you're going to continue to put out great work, man. Um, and I felt that way about Mary too from way back, as I mentioned. Um, that's awesome. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Faults is kind of like your hard eight and you will be going on to make your own punch drunk love at some point. I, I hope to make a punch drunk love someday <laughs> for sure. Some weird movie that nobody likes. And then 10 years later they love. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll wrap things up here, but that would be amazing. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Riley. I, I wish you nothing but the best and continued success. And as I said, love your film and hope to see more. I want to say thank you. And, uh, uh, hopefully everyone out there checks out the film and they like it and, and let us know and we're a small movie so tell your friends and again thank you so much thank you Riley take care man be in touch have a good day you too bye bye thanks for listening to the show you can write us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com uh, please rate us on iTunes that always helps a lot and uh, if you want to tweet to us you can always send a tweet to at DC Podcast.